0: Well, if you were with us last week, we looked at Psalm 51. Uh, that was, last was, week was a fun week. It was about confrontation and confession and Nathan going to David saying, you are the man in the story that he mentioned and David confessing and repenting and we move from Psalm 51 to Psalm 52 and it's not. The Psalms aren't arranged chronologically, just understand that. So this doesn't come like the next day after Psalm 51. Uh, this has a totally different background. And in fact, this is one of those instances where the background of the Psalm is really, really important. There's a lot that we can learn and understand just from the reading of it as we've seen today. But there's a deeper richness to know and to get as we understand the background of it. And so if you look at your Bible, the title of that first verse, it says that it is a mass skill of David. That's a kind of a a word that we probably never heard outside of something like this. It's actually a difficult word in the language to translate anyway. Uh, and so your, your Bible is translated, translated differently. So some of your Bibles might talk about it as a contemplation or instruction uh, even more of the musical term to it, almost like a well-written song. Uh, this same word, mascal, is used in the book of Amos, chapter 5, verse 13, and there it's translated as having insight or to be prudent. So the Psalms that use this word, most likely they mean it to be meditative, to think deeply on these things, to impart wisdom and to teach us something about God or about us, sometimes both of those things, God and us. You'll notice as Caleb read this Psalm, Psalm 52, you'll notice that it has shades of multiple genres that we've kind of been referring to. There's shades of praise here, certainly shades of wisdom, thanksgiving as I would consider this a thanksgiving song but there's there's even a shade of of something that we're not quite so familiar with imprecation okay so this just kind of means the imprecatory psalms are ones that you might read and the author is like calling down God's judgment God's anger God's uh, destruction or even calamity on his enemies, on the enemies of God and also on the enemies of the, the writer of the psalm usually, because usually they're one in the same. But these kind of imprecatory psalms are not written just to be vindictive or vengeful, but they're really as prayers to highlight and remember several things. God's protection on his people, God's sovereignty over even evil things and even people, and then also to emphasize God's perfect justice. They were written by men who had seen great oppression through the years on the Israelite people. And so they were written from that perspective, even a group that was threatened with extinction time and time again. And so the imprecatory Psalms communicate this kind of deep yearning for God's justice I think we even have some of that still today within us. We yearn for justice. It's just sometimes we don't yearn for God's justice, unfortunately. If you look down, glance at verse 5 of Psalm 52. David says, God will break you down forever. This is the ESV. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Now, Why would David say that about somebody? Maybe an even more important question to answer first is regarding the title in verse 1. Just look back at the title. Who is Doeg? And why was him saying that David was in the house of Ahimelech such a big deal? Why was this even mentioned? Well, this is why history matters. This is why context matters. So turn to 1 Samuel We'll be back in Psalm 52, but turn to 1 Samuel. And if you want to go to chapter 8, you can just kind of thumb through. Let me just give a quick summary of what's going on. We're actually going to read from uh, chapter 22, but starting in chapter 8, we see how Israel demanded a king. They demanded a king of God. Uh, Despite the warnings, they said, give us a king to rule over us. And so Saul was chosen in chapters 8 through 11. Uh, Unfortunately, not long after, chapters 13 to 14, Saul proved that he wasn't concerned with the ways of God. He would make rash vows and offered unlawful sacrifices. And in chapters 15 and 16, the Lord rejected Saul as king. And David was chosen to replace him. In chapters 17 and 18, probably the more remembered part of first samuel david kills goliath you know that story and then people start writing songs about david saul has killed his thousands david has killed his ten thousands guess how that made saul feel jealous saul gets jealous and starts to hate david but he tries a in, in chapter 18, he tries a more subtle approach to getting rid of David. He actually gives his own daughter to David in marriage as long as David fights for him and for the Lord. Uh, and then he tries to send David out and to die in battle at the hand of the Philistines. That doesn't work. God is with David. And so Saul, in chapter 19 of 1 Samuel, he tries to off David multiple times all by himself. Uh, An evil spirit or a vexing spirit was sent on him, and he grabs whatever he can and tries to take David out. That also doesn't work, and so David flees. He's on the move. Saul is trying to find him so that he can kill him, and that's where we're at in 1 Samuel 22. This is kind of the background of Psalm 52. So let's read. 1 Samuel 22, verses 6 through 23. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing about him. So you can see Saul's mad. He's ready to fight. Verse 7. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin. Will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds? That all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as at this day. His son being Jonathan, who was one of David's closest friends. Verse 9, Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul? I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech the son of Athitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him, and gave him provisions, and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ath- ah- Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now. Son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my Lord. Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. Verse 14. Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I've inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all of the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all of this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. The king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord. Because their hand is also, also is with David, and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day eighty five persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahithub, named Abiathar, escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day, when Doeg the Enamite was there, that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me. Do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. First thing to note here. What is Psalm 52? How does Psalm 52 describe Doeg? If you look back, it says Doeg the Edomite. Why is this significant? Well, if you look back to chapter 14 of 1 Samuel, you'll know that the Edomites and Israel were fighting. They were at war. They're enemies of one another. And so it's possible, maybe even likely, that Doag came to be in the service of Saul as either a prisoner of war or possibly even a traitor to his own people. So first Samuel chapter twenty one seven tells us a little bit more about Doag, and it says that he was the chief of Saul's herdsmen which kind of just means maybe he was over uh, Saul's servants all of Saul's servants Doeg was the captain of so this guy Doeg had been given authority under Saul to some degree and apparently as we see in this passage from 1 Samuel 22 apparently he really wanted to impress the king he really wanted to impress Saul even at the expense of his own morals his own integrity because Saul turned to one of his guards who were next to the priest. And he said, kill him. And what did that guard do? Uh, -uh. I'm not going to raise my hand and strike the priests of God. Several of them were there. I don't know how many down the line. Saul went. We're not told, but they knew better. Doag should have known better, but didn't, he didn't do what he should have. The first four verses, really verses 2 through 4 of Psalm 52, they describe the kind of person that Doeg was. If you're not there, turn back to Psalm 52 and look at verses 2 through 4. I'm just going to hit some of these descriptions. It says that his tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor. He's a worker of deceit. He loves evil more than good. He loves lying more than speaking what is right. He loves all words that devour, devour in this sense that they just mean words that destroy somebody, they swallow up, um, they tarnish or tear down the reputation or character of somebody else. He loves all the words that do that. And then it says that he has a deceitful tongue. And all of these things, these descriptions circle back to the first verse where David asked the question, why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? In some people's eyes, certainly in Doeg's own eyes, he considered himself a mighty man. He single-handedly killed 85 priests and every man, woman, boy, child, animal in the city of Nod. But apparently he didn't just do all of that. It's like he was boasting about it. Right? David had songs written about him. Saul was jealous. It seems like Doeg was the same way. He wanted people to remember him. There's a side lesson that's not the main thrust of the point today, but there's a side thing here we certainly need to understand, and it's this. Attempting to impress other people at the expense of our own integrity will always have disastrous results. We cannot sacrifice truth to impress others. It will have disastrous results, just as it did in this case. Now the Psalms, if you think back, if you've been with us the last few weeks, the Psalms have already instructed us that your integrity is more valuable than riches, than gold. We don't know, but it's likely that perhaps Doeg earned a large bounty from Saul as a result of his show of loyalty that day. Maybe he was even promoted by Saul because of it. We're not really sure because, get this, he's never mentioned again. In the whole Bible, in any form, his legacy abruptly ended here for whatever reason. Now, this is, this is such a sad story. This is such an awful story, an arrogant story. And merciless man just slaughters innocent people for his own gain. What a horrible thing. And yet, if you look just in verse 1, we see a beautiful contrast here. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? Here's the contrast. The steadfast love of God endures all the day. See the contrast One one person is boasting in his wickedness, but God's steadfast love is what endures. Evil may last for just a moment, but God's love goes on and on and on. His steadfastness continues day after day. You may have heard it said this way, darkness may last for the night, pain may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Charles Spurgeon, who you 'll hear me quote often he says the tyrant 's fury cannot dry up the constant stream of god's mercy if If priests be slain, their master lives. If Doag for a while triumphs, the Lord will outlive him and right the wrongs which he has done so the f- the first four really two through four they describe the sin of Doag of what he had done of his Failing in integrity. And then verse 5, if you're following along, verse 5 of Psalm 52 goes on to explain the response from heaven. What God's response is. Look, in the ESV it says, God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. The New King James Version says, God shall likewise destroy you forever forever. He will take you away and pluck you out of your dwelling place and root you from the land of the living. Look at those terms that are used here. Destroy forever. Snatch away. Pluck out of the tent. Remove from the land of the living. What's so ironic here is that those very things that are said are going to happen to evil men like Doag are the same things that he had done to the people of Nod. Pulled them out of their tent in in order to slaughter them to kill them it's not karma that's happening here that he's going to get what he deserves it's not retribution it's not really even revenge you know what this is this is divine justice and we see this in scripture over and over both in the old testament and even the new testament the evil that men commit comes back on them usually in worse fashion in greater measure. It's, it's a principle that we, you guys know, that you've heard. It's simple. You reap what you sow. You reap what you sow. Solomon says this in Proverbs 22 verse 8, he says, whoever sows injustice will reap calamity. Hmm. Part of Saul's, Paul's rather, Paul's admonition to the Galatian church, he said, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. We've seen the sin committed. We've seen the response from heaven. And then in verses six and seven, now we see the response, not of God necessarily, but of the righteous person, of, of David in this case. And in verse six, it says that the righteous will see and fear. But he's not talking about seeing and fearing the evil man. That's not what he means. He doesn't mean we're going to fear evil people. It means that when the coming judgment against an evil person happens, the people of God will see it, and it will cause them to fear God, not the man. To revere God as judge, not the evil person. And maybe not surprisingly... (laughs) David says in verse 6 that the righteous person may even laugh in satisfaction at the destruction of such an evil man. Now again, I don't think that this is like payback for the harm that they brought because the eradication of wickedness is always something to celebrate. Think about that for just a moment. Jason talked about this with the kids. It's a good thing for God to judge sin. Even the sin in your life, we talked about that last week, Psalm 51. It's good for God to root those things out. So the goodness of God, even in judgment, is something to be celebrated. But notice that even the laughter of the righteous has a purpose. So it's not like calamity is coming on the evil person and Christians just pop out their lawn chair, grab an iced tea, and put their feet up and laugh and point fingers. Like there's a purpose in maybe even the, the pleasure or seeing what is happening. And it's this. Christians learn from the judgment of the Lord. We don't just observe and laugh and point fingers. We learn from it. You know what's weird? We think it should be the other way around. So often, well, the evil person should learn from God's judgment. That's not really how it works very often, is it? Alexander McLaren, a Scottish Baptist pastor in the 1800s, said something really revealing, really about human nature. But he said, this is the tragedy of life, that its teachings are prized most by those who have already learned them and that those who need them most consider them the least. It's not often that the the person who's made a habit of wickedness is the one who learns from judgment. It's the righteous who should learn from judgment, who should see, and it should change us. May the people of God, may we be the ones who learn from this, to turn away from our sin and wickedness and darkness and run instead towards light and towards purity and towards truth. May the body of Christ fear and revere God's judgment so much that we would live so as to avoid the necessity of the same kind of judgment coming on us. Well, what else should Christians learn from the judgment of evil? Verse 7 tells us, See, the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. See, the evil person trust in their own strength and in their own wealth instead of finding fulfillment in who god is and all that god is they're content just with the temporary riches and temporary praise temporary authority maybe that this earth brings and it's to their own destruction one day again it's possible that doeg was given quite a lot of riches as a result of his loyalty to success and if that was the case He could be tempted to think that his wickedness produced results, success, wealth. Maybe that's the right way to be, he could think. But the truth is that earthly wealth and trust in the Lord, they have what's called an inverse relationship. You guys know what an inverse relationship is? It's where kind of like um, the value of one parameter Increases as the value of another parameter decreases and so as one goes down the other goes up It's kind of it's kind of like your bank account if your income stays the same and you spend a bunch of money Your your savings goes way down, right? What you have available goes down if you're driving on the road And you're going in a straight line if your path is consistent and you change from 35 miles an hour to 65 miles an hour You'll get there faster Okay. As one goes up, the other goes down. So as earthly riches increase, most of the time, we almost always begin to trust the Lord less. Jesus even illustrates this truth when he talks about the rich man getting to heaven like the eye of, a cam- eye of the needle in a camel. You guys remember that story? Now, I don't think that this necessarily means that every Christian is going to be penniless But I think it does mean that every Christian needs to guard against the love of money. That's the problem. The root of all evil is the love of money. Psalm 49, if you just peruse through that quickly, it describes the foolishness of trusting in riches. They're here one day and gone another. Proverbs 11.28 says, Whoever trusts in his own riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Solomon wrote that. Does that sound familiar at all to the psalm that we're in in Psalm 52? With the green olive tree? I wonder if the words of his father David in Psalm 52 verse 8 maybe had some effect on him. That he would write Proverbs 11.28. Well, look at Psalm 52 verse 8. This is a contrast again. Not like... The man who would not make God his refuge, who trusted in his own abundance of riches, that sort of thing. The contrast here, David is saying, Instead, but I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. In contrast to the wicked, who the Lord is going to uproot one day, the righteous person is going to flourish. And grow strong in the presence and in the house of God. Like he says, like a fruitful olive tree, the righteous will continue bearing fruit. Even when their enemies are all withered up and gone. The righteous person is firmly established. But notice, even though that they thrive and bear fruit, it's not because that they worked hard to earn that place in God's house. They thrive because they continue trusting in the steadfast love of God forever and ever Charles Spurgeon again he said eternal mercy is our present confidence listen to these other two selections from Psalm 92 verse 7 and 9 though the wicked sprout like grass and all evil doers flourish they are doomed to destruction forever but you O God are on high forever For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. Verses 12 through 15 of the same chapter. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him faithfulness of a loving God is the Christian's ultimate hope and the goodness of God is the Christian's constant celebration right you saw it's even in old age for the believer they're still full of sap and green you may not feel that way as you get older but if you've been planted in the court of God And are sustained by the steadfast love of the Lord forever and ever, you're never at a lack. Because the Lord provides. Because the Christian is nourished and sustained by the Lord, the message that we're always going to declare is this. The Lord is upright. That's the message that we have to give. That's how we celebrate His goodness. God is true. He's real, he's right, he's holy. And because we know this of God, and he's proven it over and over, we overflow with thankfulness because as David says here in verse 9, he says, I will thank you forever because you have done it. That's an important phrase. It's important the way that it's written that way. Because he says he has done it. Well, the obvious question, then we should ask, what has he done? Done what? He has, in perfect judgment, judged sin. Because of his steadfast love, the Lord judges perfectly and establishes his people rightly. And it's likely, think about this, it's likely that when David wrote this psalm, Doeg was still alive. It's likely that he was still maybe even in a high position of authority in Saul's kingdom. And even though Doeg's evil maybe had not gone away just yet, David still could praise God here with a confidence of faith, and he could say, you have done it. See, in David's mind, it was already a done deal. That's, I think, where it's maybe hardest for believers Today. We, we see and we hear and we read and we know the truth of God's word. Do we have confidence that even if we don't see it happening in the moment that it will come about? David did. The horrors of sin and evil of men had not shaken his confidence in God and in the truth that God is good. Is there something in your life that's shaking the confidence that you have that God is good? I imagine there probably is for some of us today. I like how the King James Version translates verse 9. It says, I will praise thee forever because thou hast done it, and I will wait on thy name for it is good before the saints. Praise is due to God because he's faithful to complete his promise and because his name is good. Think about names for just a minute with me. In the Old Testament, especially, your name was really important, right? Your name was kind of who you were as a person. You were identified by your name. But you know what? It's not really changed all that much, is it? When you hear some people's names, and please don't say them out loud, when you hear some people's names, certain things come to mind, right? Whether it's good things or whether it's not so good things really depends on who that person is, doesn't it? What they've done, kind of choices that they make, what their reputation is, their integrity, their trustworthiness. That's all tied to their name. Friends, it's tied to your name. When people think of you, what comes to mind? David is confident. That God is faithful. But you know what? Even if he has to wait, he's going to wait. He's ready to wait. He knows that God keeps his promises, and so he is content to wait even when it's difficult. Are we content to wait on the goodness of God even when it's difficult? Now, I don't think we should miss something here, though. David says he's going to wait on the name of God because it is good before the saints. Saints, in this instance especially, does not refer to dead Christians. Now, dead Christians are referred to as saints, but live Christians are referred to as saints in Scripture as well. You all are, every saved person in here is a saint. Even though you're living and breathing, you are still a saint. And so Christians know that the Lord is good And they encourage one another to keep believing. One of the ways that we see the goodness of the name of God is when we gather with the church and we encourage one another in the faith. We really behold the goodness of God in Christ effectively in the presence of his people. You can see God in other ways. You do see God in other ways, but one of the clearest is when you've gathered with his saints. Because when life is overwhelming, when you feel like you just can't handle what's coming the next day, the next week, the next minute, the assembly of the saints is where we go to find strength and peace and encouragement. Because we should be, as the body of Christ, we should be encouraging people in the Lord. If you feel like you can't make it through the next day, look to Christ and act on that. Put your faith in Him again. Preach the gospel to yourself again. In the presence of the saints, we should be reminded of God's steadfast love and how His goodness endures continually, as verse 9 says, day after day. Those who reject the Lord and rely on their own strength and rely on their own wealth will end up broken down and ashamed, just like Doeg. Broken down completely. But instead, the the person who places their trust in the Lord, the one who makes God their refuge, they will celebrate the goodness of God day after day. Day after day for all of eternity. So Christian... Psalm 52 is an encouragement to you. Keep believing. Wait on the Lord. Don't fall into the trap or make the mistake of trusting in earthly wealth. Learn from God's judgment of evil. Celebrate His good name with your church family and thank the Lord forever. This is what David is saying here. We've seen the evil and what that does. This is the contrast. We should be about these things. And if you're here and you don't know the Lord, you need to recognize that what happened to Doeg will happen to you too. Not because God's an unmerciful tyrant or anything like that. It's actually quite the opposite. Because he's just and he's righteous. And he's right and it's good for him to judge sin His name is good because he is just and righteous, right? When we think of God's name, we should think of his goodness and his holiness because it's tied to his name. And if he's good and if he's holy and if we continue in our sin and wickedness, he is right and good to judge us for that. He's not unfair. So if our hope and our goal and our aim is to be like a flourishing tree, like David called the olive tree. You can't trust in the abundance of earthly riches. We can't do it. But instead, we should trust in the steadfast love of the Lord forever and ever, he says. So the big question that we're left with at the end of this psalm is where is your trust today? Like, Where are you placing your trust? Is it in your riches, your retirement, your bank account, your income? Your properties, your stuff, is it there? It can't be, friend. It shouldn't be. Move it away from there. Those things may satisfy for a moment, but they do not last. They will not make you happy in the end. Instead, don't be like that. Put your trust in the goodness of God, in the holiness of God, in who He is. Our hope and our prayer is that you would turn away from trusting yourself, your own effort, your own riches, your own goodness even. Instead, that you would put your trust and believe in the truth, the, the just, the righteous, and holy and loving God. If you call out to, to him today, he tells us in his word that he hears you, and he responds in, in salvation. So if you've not called out on the name of God to be saved, he's listening for you to do that today. And his heart would have room for you to join the family. If that's something that you'd like to find more information about or you'd like to come up and talk with me, we're going to sing a song of reflection now as we close. And during that song, just come up. I'll be standing up here. I'd love to talk with you more. Love to pray with you, set up a time to talk with you more. Don't leave today without understanding the goodness of God. Let's pray. Lord, help us not to be like Doeg. God, it's it's really, it's easy. Our nature kind of already bends that way. It'd be easy to just kind of fall into the trap of putting our faith in earthly things because we can see it. We can hold those things. We can see evidence of what our wealth can buy and do. But Lord, that stuff just fades, and we know it does. We've all gotten new things that we think will make us happy for a long, long time, and it never lasts as long as we even think. And so, Lord, help us to turn away from that, to not trust in those things. But instead, as David says, Lord, that we would make you our refuge That we would make you our refuge. Not riches, not our own goodness. Lord, none of that satisfies. None of that fixes it. Only crying out to you as a holy and loving God. in repentance and faith changes things. And you are the one who does it. Lord, may you move in our midst as your word has been spoken and as we respond now. God, I pray that we would not fear the judgment of men, but Lord, that we would mostly fear your judgment. We would mostly revere who you are and submit our lives in accordance. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.